Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks very much for joining us today. I just finished talking with Henrietta Harrison about her really great new book, The Missionary's Curse and Other Tales from a Chinese Catholic Village. This came out in 2013 with the University of California Press. This is a book that looks at a very particular town, Cave Gully, in a very particular region, Shanxi, of a very particular nation, China. Over 300 very particular years of its history as it emerges and transforms into a Catholic community in different ways and in different respects. But this very particular local story winds up giving us access to a much more comprehensive story about not just what's happening globally in terms of the history of China, the history of Christianity, but also what it meant to be global in this period of world history, how practices really enacted globalness for residents of this Chinese Catholic village. And it's a story with much broader implications um, than just the history of these people in this particular town in this particular place, although that story itself is inherently fascinating. So those who come to this story with an interest in modern China, with an interest in the history of religions, in the history of religious practice, in Christianity or Catholicism in particular, will find obviously much in this book. It's a really important contribution to all of these literatures, and it's a really insightful contribution that really weaves itself into larger discourses and narratives about all of these topics. But even if you don't come to this book considering yourself somebody who works in or is inherently interested in the history of China, the history of Christianity, it's also fascinating because one of the really awesome things that Harrison is doing in this book is she's exploring different modes of storytelling, not just for her own craft as a historian, but also ways to think about how local residents of a town like Cave Gully tell their own stories about their pasts and their histories and how to link those up into um, our stories, into other stories. So it's really a meditation on and a, a practical experiment with the art and the craft of storytelling as much as it is a history of modern China um, from a particular perspective. It's a fascinating book. Um, I think it's an important book. It's also a huge pleasure to read. So this was something that was a lot of fun to get through as much as I learned a lot from it. It was a pleasure to talk with Henrietta about it. And I hope you enjoy not just the conversation, but also the book. We're here today to talk with Henrietta Harrison about her new book, The Missionary's Curse and Other Tales from a Chinese Catholic Village. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Henrietta, and thank you so much for making time, despite the time difference and the really busy time um, in the year, to talk with me today about what's really a fascinating and extraordinarily readable new book. It's really a pleasure to read the book, and I'm excited to talk with you about it. Thank you very much. I'm will be exciting for me too. <laughs> so can you start us off as is traditional for the New Books in East Asian Studies channel by saying a little bit about your own story as it brought you to modern China? How did you come to work? Um, if you can 
um, you know, narrate this in any way that seems reasonable or interesting to you right now. How did you come to work on the history of modern China? Well, I began by studying classics. I was a classics major as an undergraduate, and that was in the English system, which meant that I did nothing but ancient Greek and Latin, um, from really from the age of 16 through to 21. And I then... Um, got very fed up with postmodernism, which was what I was being taught as a classicist, as it turned out. Um, and I thought I'd like to learn a language. I thought that would be a nice, solid, real thing. Um, so I switched, So I, and I went to the U.S. to study for a master's degree in regional studies of East Asia um, and began learning Chinese and then went on in... And at that point, I thought I was going to, be a, going to go into business, but, at that, but then I ended up going on into a PhD. Um, and I'd always been interested in history, really, ever since primary school, but I hadn't actually ever studied it. In fact, I gave it up at 14 and have no qualifications in it at all, which is quite surprising, really, given my subsequent career. Um, but what I enjoyed was the primary school kind of history where you did what people ate and what they wore and what life was like in the past. And, and I disliked history when it got to secondary school. It was all the Congress of Vienna and nations being handed over from one to the other. Of course, I'm interested in that kind of political history now, but I'm interested in it, in it really in a, as a background to the sort, the sort of history that's more about people's lives. And that's really what I enjoy doing. Great. Now, this is very relevant to the book that we're talking about today. So the current book that we'll be talking about for our conversation today focuses on 300 years of history in a story that moves between China and Europe and is grounded on re- grounded in research in four la- or five rather languages. So it's an extraordinarily rich archive you're working with. It's a multilingual archive, um, a really rich set of um, historical cases that you're talking about as well. This book explores the history of a Catholic town in Shanxi called Cave Gully by weaving together some of the most important stories through which the inhabitants of this town remember its history and their own history. So how did you come to focus on this particular scale of storytelling and on the village of Cave Gully in particular to tell this story? Well, I originally, when I started studying China, I, my first book was a sort of large-scale study of um, China in the early 20th century. Um, and at the end of that book, my supervisor, my PhD supervisor, told me that he really thought I should write about Shanxi, which he was interested in, which is part of rural North China. And I really didn't have any intention of doing this. But David Ford, who was my supervisor, was very persuasive. And after two or three days of argument, we settled down that I would write a book about this part of North China. And this is not the present book. But I, it was, in fact, very much the right decision. I became completely fascinated by the history of central Shanxi. Um, and I went up and I wrote a biography and I interviewed people and I was working on a village which is about six miles north of this one um, and it was the study of a man called Liu Dapeng who was a um, village villager, a degree holder, a sort of minor school teacher, minor coal mine worker, administrator in the early 20th century, who basically who was a diarist. And and I wrote that, that, that book, which is called The Man Awakened from Dreams, and it made me very interested in this area, in fact, completely fascinated by the history of central Shanxi. And Liu Dapeng actually mentions this village. So one day when I was in Shanxi, I um, asked my patron, someone asked me where I would like to go. And um, my patron there 
was, was willing to take me out. So when I said, I would like to go and see this village, this Catholic village that's mentioned in this, um, uh, in, 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 in the diary. And he wasn't very keen because, as, as I say in the book, Catholicism is a sensitive subject, and he thought I should work, he was, he's at the Academy of Social Sciences, and he thought I should work on something safer and suitable for women, like marriages. But we went, and um, we happened to arrive in the evening, just as everyone was going in for evening prayers. It was just a weekday evening at about six o'clock, and everybody was carrying their kneelers. They had these um, patchwork velvet kneelers, and they were all going in for prayers. And But otherwise, it was just the most totally ordinary Chinese village. It was just like any other village in central Shanxi, except that it had this Romanesque church in the middle of it, and everybody was going to say evening prayers, and they were all Catholic, and the, um, the, the couplets, the, the poetic couplets they have in tiles on their doors, instead of saying things like many sons and long life, they said things like um, obey the Ten Commandments and love the Lord. So it just was a fascinating place, and then it seemed to me that it was a terribly suitable subject for me to do, because the archives for it are all in, a lot of them are in Latin, which was a language I'd studied for years and years and years and could read with ease. Um, and subsequently, I had to learn Italian for the project, and my Italian is less good. But, but I had the capacity to use those archives, and it's clearly something that I, as a foreigner, could bring to Chinese history, in a, rather than doing subjects where one's endlessly lamenting that one doesn't simply can't get up the background knowledge that your Chinese colleagues have acquired in their high school days when they read every novel in sight of the period or whatever it was. Um, so I found it a very fascinating place um, and then started to look up all its, all its materials. I find it more interesting because I'm interested in... Um, the way people lived, I find it very fascinating to go there and talk to people and see how it really was. And I think, although you realize that you make many mistakes, you, you do gain a closer understanding of how life was when you're really talking to people at that level and talking to them about the place they live and how, how their lives have been. Now, one of the really notable things about the book is that it's a book about this particular town. It's about the history of Christianity in China and their relationships, um, and we'll, we'll get to that as well. But it's also a book about storytelling, and this is one of the most fascinating aspects of this book. And then one of the things that's going to make, if and probably has already made the book, extraordinarily useful, really interesting to think with for anybody interested in historiographical craft and the and in the art of storytelling, whether or not they have any, they come to the book with any prior interest in China. Um, so storytelling is, as an approach, is an extraordinarily interesting decision that you've made here. Can you talk a little bit about that? How did you decide to structure the book in this way? And um, can you talk about the consequences of that for how you thought about the story? Well, it, it was. As, as a matter of fact, this began... <laughs> People told me these stories, and I, I was trained, because I was trained by David Fall, who's an ex, who, whose whole method, who works on South China, and whose whole method of doing history is um, to, to ask people, to go there and ask the people, to go there and to read the local documents and to ask the people and to believe that people can tell you about the places they come from. And, and he, he used to say rather controversially that you could learn about anything back to the 12th century <laughs> by, by talking to people. And of course, in Chinese villages, you have these families that stretch back for many, many generations. And you really can go in and people will know things about the 
the, what was going on in when their ancestors first arrived there and how their ancestors came there and how many generations have lived there since. And, and that's obviously fascinating. Now, and so I, I had been trained up to a kind of history that involves going to the place, talking to the people and listening to their stories. And when I went to the village, these were the, the stories that this book is based around were the stories that I heard. Um, and I enjoyed listening to those. But the other, on the other side, I also had a problem because many of these stories, as you'll notice, are about miracles. Um, and as a rather sort of ordinary Protestant, Anglican, Christian, I um, got in a very great tangle about whether I believed in these miracles. Um, and I became extremely anxious about, um, but especially at the, right at the end, there's a story of the flying bicycle. And the flying and I can find it quite easy to believe in that people have visions or that people get healed, get better after illnesses and if, after prayer and illnesses and heal. But the flying bicycle was really where I, 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 the flying bicycle was beyond me to believe in. I didn't believe in the flying bicycle. And the people I was telling were really upset about this. It really mattered to them that I believed in the flying bicycle. And I became extremely anxious about this. And I remember saying at a party to um, Ruby Watson, um, who obviously is an anthropologist, and I said to her, um, you know, I'm, I'm so worried about this business, about whether I believe in, in the miracle, these miracles and the flying bicycle. And, and she looked at me, and I, I think I went on for quite a long time, and she looked at me and she said, but that's not usually how anthropologists think about these things. And that was a real turning point for me. And I suddenly realized that if you, if you started looking at the stories as a way into what was happening, they became far, they, they were lively and they told you they, they, they turned what had happened into narrative and into engaging narrative, but also you could look through them and then use the archives to look through them and to try and get a deeper understanding of the society that lay behind them and the people who had produced those stories and passed them down and start thinking about why those stories had been produced and why they had been passed down. And indeed, in the end, I discovered that the first stories of the bicycle had not in fact been about a flying bicycle, but about a car that magically broke down and that this had over the years become transformed into a story about a flying bicycle. Great. Now, as we move into the body of the work from this really fascinating set of stories, there are ways in which changing the typical story um, that we have or that we receive about Christianity and China and their relationships by focusing on these local stories and by shifting the scale to a very particular locality really results in upending some of the major ways that this history has been conventionally told. So one of the things that you mentioned really early on in the book is that um, your research in this way, structuring the story in this way, thinking about the story on this level, overturns what has been come, what has come to be known as the acculturation argument, right? Mm. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about that for listeners? What, what is this major transformation and um, how do the stories in this book help us think differently about the process of or the facta of um, acculturation and the relationship between China and Christianity in this period? Yes, well, basically, most of the people who've thought about Christianity in China have quite understandably tend to look at, tended to look at a particular period, because that's what most historians do, and so most historians working on this. And when they've looked at a, at a particular period, they've taken the idea that um, Christianity is a, 
a, a Western, Middle East and then Western construct, which is then transported to China. And they've looked at what's going on in China and they've seen that what was actually happening in China is um, that Christianity is taking on forms out of Chinese culture. And they've called that process acculturation, so that Christianity is becoming more and more Chinese and that as it becomes more Chinese, um, it's, uh, as it becomes more Chinese, it's, it, it, it becomes more authentically Chinese and therefore more people will believe in it. And they tend to see this as a process that got stuck um, in the 18th century with the Catholic Chinese rights controversy, where the, first you have the Jesuits who are in favor of acculturation, um, and that then you have the rights controversy in which the Vatican bans Chinese people, Chinese Catholics from participating in their traditional ancestral rights, and this process is brought to us halt. Um, and, and much of the scholarship that's done on Christianity in China covers the period before that. Um, and then there's been much less scholarship, in fact, on the 19th century. Um, and but going into the 20th century, again, you see the rise of Protestant sects that are um, highly acculturated, highly mixed up with Chinese culture. So there's been this story that Christianity will be more acceptable in China as it becomes um, more acculturated, more like Chinese culture. And that makes sense if you look at every different period, because in any period you can see this happening, this process happening, and indeed it's still happening today. But when I actually looked at the whole sweep of 300 years' history, it didn't seem to me that that was what was happening. It seemed to me that people, when they first believe, tend to want to believe in something that's much more similar to um, their own local culture. But then as the years go on and generations are born into the faith, people also become very interested in this business of belonging to a global faith, to something that stretches beyond China. And, that, and being an authentically member of, the, of global Christianity becomes ever increasingly important. So there are actually two processes. One is the process of acculturation, but then there's this equally important process of globalization and of religion in, in part as being a crucial part of that and people seeking authenticity in that global belief in global religion. Great. Now, as we move from the introduction to the chapters, each of the chapters begins with a folk tale that's told by the villagers and then follows the themes of this tale and the events in this tale through an archive of written sources. So let's talk about some of these stories, and we won't necessarily be able to get to all of them in our conversation, but I want to just signal that this is here for listeners because this is one of the most, one of many um, things that are fascinating about the book, but it's one of the most fascinating things for me as someone interested in, in storytelling as part of the historical craft um, in reading the book. So the first chapter opens with stories about the founding of Cave Gully, this town that we're going to be um, focusing on and living through along with its inhabitants for the duration of the book. You introduce up here stories, competing stories of two different founding families. Both claim that their ancestors were the first to arrive. Um, their names are the Duan and the Wu families. 
And there are several elements of the stories that are common, even though the stories themselves are quite different. So in all of these stories, you note conversion to Christianity marked a new beginning for these families. The people who had converted um, to Christianity had left their homes. And also, markedly, there are no missionaries in either of these founding stories. And so this sets the stage for us to look at some of these um, qualities and also some of the transformations in um, what, you know, what's going to happen for these families and the relationship to Cave Gully and to Christianity um, over the course of the story. So let's talk about this um, a little bit to get us into the, uh, the ongoing story and the rest of the tales that are going to follow. The, you mentioned early on in this book and in this chapter that the early years of the Qing were really a great age of conversion for Shanxi. Why was Christianity so attractive for residents of Shanxi in this period, and why was this such um, an important period of conversion? Can you talk a little bit about that to get us going? I'm not sure that Christianity was so attractive. I think that all sorts of small sects got off the ground in, in this period, in fact, and that Christianity was merely one of a whole range of possible options, all of which looked quite similar, um, through which, which, which provided um, a religious framework and network for people who generally were not living in their home area. A lot of Chinese folk religion is tied to a particular place, a particular area. Um, and obviously, in general, people who have left their homes are more likely to join some kind of new religious movement than people who remain within a settled community. And Shanxi in this period saw two things that really brought this out. Um, and, and caused people to join a whole lot of different groups of which Catholicism was in fact was just one. Um, and one of the things is this long distance trade. Shanxi was this, was a major center for China's long distance trade. Um, in this period, um, you have merchants um, going down to um, Guangdong, um, going to Beijing, taking part in the tea trade out to the northwest, to, to Mongolia and into Russia, really large-scale long-distance trade. And because so many people are involved in those, that long-distance trade, the people who do it live away from home for many years. Um, they come back usually once every three years, see their wife briefly, and then their wives and families were left behind. And they go off and they live in the business. Um, this is a perfect scenario for conversion in many ways. They're isolated from their families. Um, they're on their own in a, in a strange new place. They've got a very small community. And you meet and many of our earliest converts in the archives are that kind of person. They're business people, trade merchants who've used Christianity as a way of forming networks. They're people running soy sauce businesses, trading furs, trade and in this in this long distance trade. Um so that's one reason. The other thing that happens, obviously, is the wars of the Ming-Qing transition, which caused enormous numbers of people to be displaced. Changes very severely fought over. Huge numbers of people are killed. Huge numbers of people are displaced. And refugees and people running, fleeing from their homes are another type of person who are relatively likely to join some kind of religious movement that provides them with an alternative framework. Great. So this part of the book also talks about specifically, as, as you mentioned, the linkages between um, practices that were associated with Christianity in this period and also practices um, that were associated with Buddhist groups and Taoist groups. And so you explore early on in this book not just the linkages, but also some of the aspects of 
um, the practice that became associated with Christianity in Shanxi in this period that did look like um, the kinds of practices that some people would have been prior, um, were prior to this would have been familiar with. So um, you mentioned honoring the Ten Commandments as a way of intensifying existing morality, um, honoring a deity um, that was familiar from the classic canon, heaven. And it's, it was also, as you mentioned, a set of religious practices that built communities, but in a familiar form. So once we have this foundation set at the beginning of the uh, of this book in the first chapter you just mentioned the importance of long distance trade and that brings us i think really really beautifully into the bishop and the wolf which is a chapter that's all about this so can you lead us here by telling us the story of the bishop and the wolf what's what's going on here with the bishop and the wolf and this will lead us into talking a little bit about some of the characters that wind up emerging and becoming really central to this part of the story this is a wonderful story, which in fact I wasn't told. This was the one story that comes from a written source. It was collected in the late 19th century by one of the, one of the missionaries. And the story is that once upon a time, there was a... Um, the, the people in Shanxi had been exiled. Um, and the bishop wanted to send a priest to visit the exiles. And the exiles were on the other side of the Gobi Desert in what we now think of as Xinjiang. Um, and so the priest said to the bishop, um, but how will I know where to go? Um, and the bishop said, fear not, you will know, and sent him off to, and so he, the priest goes north from Shanxi and he reaches the Great Wall, and on the other side of the Great Wall is a vast desert, um, and he looks out across the desert, um, and he doesn't know where to go until he sees a wolf, and he thinks, well, you may, maybe this is the guide, and he follows the wolf. And he follows it all day till he comes to the tent of some Mongol um, herders, the yurt. He stays there at night, and the next day the wolf is there again. And so he follows the wolf. All the wolf takes him all the way to what we don't, what now, what is now Xinjiang, to where these people have been exiled. And he then um, re- returns, also following the wolf. And when he gets back, he says to. Um, uh, he comes to the bishop, and as he walks into the bishop's office, um, the bishop says, and, um, and how was the help? Even before before he has opened his mouth, the bishop says, how was the helper I, I sent you? Um, and then people debate, uh, but wow, was this wolf some kind of divine spirit? But, and the bishop says, no, he was a wolf doing the will of um, of God. Um, and obviously this reminds us of the story of St. Francis and the wolf of Gubbio. This is a Franciscan bishop. So this is a story told initially as a story about the virtue of the bishop who is able to send this out. But also, obviously in the archives, I discovered the letters from the priest who made the journey, which was very fascinating. Can you talk a little bit about who is this priest and what do we need to know about him in order to understand um, some of the important aspects of this story in this part of the book? called Jacobus Wang, and he, he was um, uh, trained in China, so he, he wasn't a priest who'd gone off to study abroad. He's a Chinese priest, um, uh, and he was a he was a very brave, he was, he, he was called that famous fanatic. I mean, this was an incredibly dangerous journey to make. Um, and in fact, as I recently have gone on to work more on Gansu, it really was a spectacularly, it was incredibly distant. It took him many months. You, he was perpetually at risk of being captured. Um, and what he was, was he was a, a Chinese priest trained in China who really in many ways had a, had a quite responsible and respected role in the diocese. At this stage, there tended to be one 
competent foreign missionary in the area, and the foreign missionary had to be um, in hiding because Christianity was illegal, uh, and particularly the presence of foreign missionaries was illegal. So he had to be hiding in one of the in a, in a, they hid in a village just outside one of the main trading towns. But the really active people in this period were were these. Chinese priests, who the, the missionaries trained up, um, and then they themselves took action. And Jacobus Wang was was one of those priests. Now he's actually sent to Kashgaria, as you describe here, um, by this uh, guy uh, Giovacchino. Giovacchino. I'm going to mispronounce oh, everything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to mispronounce everything. My, my Italian pronunciation is also very poor, since I read Italian largely on the basis of my earlier Latin. But the, the, the Giovacchino Salvetti. Salvetti. My ancestors are turning in their graves. I apologize, <laughs> all nappies and demartinis out there. But okay. so, so Wong is sent um, by this guy Salvetti. And this is a period when missionaries are actually first becoming a regular part of the lives of Catholics in this area of central Shanxi. Um, so can you talk a little bit about him? Because if we need to sort of understand who Salvetti was and what was he was doing here to understand then later on what happens when he is replaced by another guy whose approach is really, really different. So what is Salvetti doing in this part of the story? So Salvetti has arrived in China. He's, he's a competent person. He was sent out specifically because the previous um, missionary wrote back and said, we have no one here. Please, can you send us someone competent? And he arrived in Shanxi, but he can't. At that point, he has no further money. He has The French Revolution has gone on in Europe. There's no source of money coming in. So he basically has to earn a living as a priest um, in Shanxi and as the bishop. And he earns that living by providing ritual services to the, um, to the wealthy local Catholics, so to the Catholic elite. They provide, and they, those, that Catholic elite are the Catholic people who converted who are traders. So he lives close to one of these trading towns. He lives within, they provide him with a, a, a house which he uses as a seminary to train priests. Um, he stays pretty much nearly all the time. He's in that place. Um, he writes letters and runs whatever else is going on long distance. But basically, he is subordinate to the um, local population. Um, and he's supposed to be, from the point of view of Rome, he should be introducing the rulings of the rights controversy, which say that... Um, Catholics are not allowed to um, kowtow at funerals um, and, and, such, and to keep ancestral tablets. But he doesn't actually do that because that's quite unacceptable to the local population. So in fact, every time, what he simply does is to write back to Rome another query asking them, could they possibly, you know, would it be okay if they did it this way? And all the time when that, and it takes a very long time to, for to write to Rome and for a response to come back. And um, in the meanwhile, nothing changes. So although he's going, Salvetti survives into the 19th century, this is a lot of this is going on in the 19th century, and yet those 18th century rules are not being applied because basically the Chinese, the local Chinese are in charge of the church. So Salvetti, um, once he's done being bishop, um, the, uh, there's another guy who comes in to replace him, right? Oh, yes, Griolio. Griolio. So Griolio is not um, 
very much like Salvetti, his approach is really different. And this winds up having pretty significant consequences for what's happening for our um, Chinese Christians in our town of Cave Gully. So can you talk a little bit about who is Griolio and how is his approach different so that we can understand? I think these people are very much representative of two types of missionaries. Salvetti behaved the way he did because he had to, and Riolio behaves the way he does because he can. So he has, is, um, though they are as well probably different characters. But so Riolio comes in, and he comes in um, in the aftermath of the Opium Wars. He has access to funding from outside the province, or from outside China. He's getting money from France. He moves his headquarters away from these powerful Shanxi merchants, Catholic merchants, and into um, Cape Gully, which is very impoverished and where he can be a much more dominant personality. And he imposes those rulings from the rights controversy. Um, and he also tries to impose a ban on usury. And this is the period when um, Shanxi is becoming the center of China's banking industry. And many, many merchants are expanding their long-distance trading networks into remittances and then into other forms of banking business, obviously including usury. Mm-hmm. Um, or lending at high interest rates. And in fact, the Jesuits many years earlier had been willing to accommodate this, but, but Griolio is not. Um, so he has, um, he ends up facing a great deal of opposition from the um, local Catholic elites. And this blows up into a, a massive argument over one particular um, Chinese priest who goes off to appeal to Rome. But that, of course, is the next chapter of the book. <laughs> Right. So the next chapter, the priest who ran away to Rome. So this priest that you're talking about um, is Wang Tingrong. And as Griolio comes into Cave Gully, um, Wang has just left to go to Naples and study. So as all of this is happening, um, that money's coming in from treaties after the first opium war that make it possible um, for Griolio to have much more access to resources that his predecessor didn't have. He builds a church, he builds residences, he establishes an orphanage, and there are really drastic changes because of this in terms of the status of missionaries in the local community, and people are complaining about this. Okay, so it, back um, in this heated atmosphere, Wang Tirong comes back from Naples after having this really different kind of kind of a, I might call it a life-changing experience in Naples, where he's um, he's going to the College of Chinese, he's exposed to ideas about reforming the church in this period, he's exposed to different kinds of interaction with women, um, and he comes back to China after this trip, and he's coming right in the middle of this really transformative period for Cape Gully. So can you talk a little bit about then what happens um, at this point once Wang and Griolio um, come together? So they have, I mean, they're both of them um, quite difficult personalities, clearly, and they have a spectacular bust-up for no very good reason. One thinks um, that Griolio is... is, One annoys Griolio by not turning up as soon as he gets back from Naples. Um, And Griolio really never forgives him, and both thinks the the other is being insufficiently respectful. Um, And... Riolio starts to accuse Wang of a whole lot of different problems. But basically the, power, the problem is that Wang is coming in with all these new ideas um, and in a, having come from a situation in Naples where many of 
the local clergy were in strong opposition to their bishops, where this was simply an accepted fact of the life of the Catholic Church. And of course, in China, these missionary bishops have been happy to have uh, and have been able since 1840, which is when Griolio arrived, since the Opium Wars, they've had, had a position which means they're not in opposition to those to, to the local clergy, and, they, and Griolio expects simply to demand that something be done and for wanting wrong to do it. And wanting wrong is absolutely not prepared to do this. And in the end, Griolio, who's a very dominant personality, also annoys everybody else, <laughs> all the other missionaries too, and they run away to, Shanxi, to, to Shanghai um, to complain about him. So it's a very, it's a very complex, incredibly complex dispute in which everybody's accusing everybody of everything. But at the heart of it is the fact that, that Riolio is trying to introduce the reforms that were set in place, the, the rights controversy reforms, and another of, a number of other reforms that are going to make the Catholic Church in Shanxi look much more like the global Catholic Church. Right. And this is but in a way, it's different parts of the global Catholic Church fighting because, of course, Wang Qingrong is also basing his ideas on what's going on in the global Catholic Church. I mean, it's not an idealized model of the global Catholic Church. It's the global Catholic Church as it was actually practiced in southern Italy in the 18th century. That's right. And one of the really interesting things about this part of the story is, again, as in um, many of the, really all of the chapters, we're not just looking at the local events that are happening in Cave Gully. This is also a way for us to think, to step out in scale and think more broadly about how this um, impacts how we understand the larger global history of Christianity, of China, and of their relationships. And what we see here at this point of the story is that in this really interesting change, people in Cave Gully come to see themselves as part of a global organization. And so it's not just the fact of the global organization. It's, you know, in Wang running away to Rome, right? And, his, and there's this wonderful account of his journey. He writes a ballad about it. It's really um, difficult. But even in that move um, by the Chinese priests that he's leading at the end of this story, who are writing to Rome to ask um, for a change to be happened, and Wang thinking that it's okay to go to Rome and advocate himself, you see a transformation in their own self-concept of their of their you know, being a part of this global organization, and that's a really interesting part of the story, I think. So yeah, so we have all right. So now we're we're at this transformative part. Um, Wang has just become the priest who ran away to Rome. We've we've met the wolf. We've talked about travel. Now we need to meet the souls in purgatory, and this brings us to another transformative part of this story. So can you tell us about uh, this this story, the souls in purgatory protecting the village during the Boxer uprising? What's happening here? I wanted to write at this point about the Boxer Uprising, and nearly all the villages surrounding Cave Gully, during the Boxer Uprising, almost everybody, all the Catholics who lived there, who um, were killed. But in Cave Gully, that wasn't the story. So when I went to ask about the, the Boxer Uprising, I got this very different story, which is about how the souls in purgatory came to protect them. And the souls in purgatory are an element of Catholic doctrine, which are very definitely not 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 a major feature in Catholicism today, certainly not in England or America. Um, uh, but this is the idea that your ancestors, who have gone not to heaven nor to hell, but to purgatory, where they're being purged of their sins, um, 
will get a sh- get time off purgatory if you pray for them. Um, and this is a, and therefore will be willing. Therefore, their spirit, divine spirits, that will be willing to help you. Um, and this was the story I was told that the souls in purgatory came to help the villagers. But of course, the idea of the souls in purgatory is the idea that your ancestors are Catholic, that Catholicism is not something new, whereas all the standard stories of the Boxer Uprising treated as a, as a problem because there was a wave of conversion in the 19th century. And I've become, I always assumed that this was the case until I started looking at the statistics. But when you actually look at the statistics, there was not a wave of conversion. Shanxi is one of the places that has the worst um, massacres in the Boxer Uprising. About 4,000 people are killed across the province. Um, and there was no wave of conversions. There were more missionaries, there were more church buildings, but there were not, was not a wave of conversions. Most of the people who were Catholic came from families that dated back, that, that, whose Catholicism dated back to the 18th century. So this is a way of rethinking the Boxer Uprising to argue that what happened wasn't about something that changed that people couldn't accommodate Christianity, but that the global political context changed and that Christianity became something that was part of how imperialism was playing out, even though it had been quite acceptable 100 years earlier. Great. Now, there's some really interesting parts of this chapter, and I'm not going to talk too much about it so that we can get to um, the cursing missionary. Um, but I want to just mention uh, very briefly for listeners, there's this wonderful moment um, where you describe in this chapter what actually happens when the boxers come to Cave Gully. And you know, as you mentioned, there's really not a whole lot of damage. One of the one of the many points in this narrative that's just really that really sparkles for me is there's this wonderful account buried in the middle of a paragraph of well it may have had something to do with the fact that the boxers found the stash of communion wine so they, yes. they may have kind of had other things to do uh, rather than uh, tear things up uh, so it's it's just a, another really wonderful part of this story well, that's the joy of reading all these archival materials, is that you come across these kind of things that are not in the grand narrative. Right, exactly. Um, so, okay, so we've talked about the Boxer Uprising, and you've um, talked a little bit about um, what's happening now with this part of the story more globally. So Christianity's links to foreign powers in this area are now an increasingly an issue in part because, as you've mentioned, missionaries are becoming more visible. They're actually encouraging, um, in this part of the story, forms of religious practice that actively separate Catholics from surrounding communities, and they're also encouraging close bonds that are linking Catholic communities together. So all of this is happening, and we get through the boxers, and then we come to this really wonderful chapter about the missionary who cursed the village. So who is the missionary who cursed the village? Can you tell us that story? Oh, storyteller. So so part of what's going on at this stage is, is this sort of ongoing battle between the Chinese clergy and the foreign clergy. Um, and this is dates back to Wang Qingrong and his, his support for um, the, the, the sense that he is fighting on behalf of the Chinese clergy against foreign missionary control. And then in this chapter, what we see is, is that, that also there were also big disputes between the Chinese Catholics and the foreign clergy. Um, and this, this story is about um, a missionary, Fatsini, um, who... Uh, 
really struggles with being a missionary. He doesn't find it at all easy to learn the language. He's very, he has a very fiery temper. He often explodes. Um, he gets into trouble everywhere he's sent, and he ends up being sent to Cape Gully because it's felt to be a slightly easier place to cope with than some of the other villages where the missionaries are actually trying to do new conversions. So he ends up in Cape Gully, and there's this big um, dispute about water, um, water rights in the village. Cape Gully is expanding. The missionaries are inviting other people to come and live there. There's a shortage of water. I mean, Shanxi is very arid. Water rights are always a big issue in these places. Um, and the villagers um, uh, get into a dispute and with, with him. And he becomes so angry that he... Um, the whole they they lock they lock he wants to go and he wants to take with him a statue of Our Lady of Lords and the villagers lock the church up against him and he's so angry that he's not allowed to take his statue that he curses the village he takes off his shoe just like in in, in the Gospel of Matthew he takes off his shoe he shakes the dust from it and he um, curses the village with seven years of bad weather as a result of which they subsequently build a shrine which is still there today to take off the curse and this is the most famous story about Cave Gully, this is what everybody knows about Cave Gully um, When you were hearing these stories um, because especially you mentioned that this is one of the most well known stories about Cave Gully in your experience talking to people about this story, did you hear any really interestingly divergent accounts of this story that made you um, to think about this particular part of the book in a different way? Or were they pretty much convergent? Were, were the versions that you heard pretty much par- parallel versions? Uh, the, this story has is pretty much convergent. I mean, there were differences as to how long the curse was for, how... Um, uh, what exactly happened was there a plague of, of locusts attached to it as well. Um, but the, the bulk of the story in this case is, is, is pretty similar in everybody's account. Okay. Which is itself interesting, right? So Yes, and that is a fact about these stories, is that you hear them from many different people, and clearly they're worded in a different way every time. And I had great difficulty deciding whether I should have tape recorded them, which I didn't do for because of the sensitivity of the subject. I didn't want to tape record people and didn't feel they would talk happily under those circumstances. But also, in fact, you get a different story every time. Um, and so in the end, I've retold, I've, I chose to retell the stories in my own voice with some commentary on what differences play out in them when those are important. So this, what's happening with Fazzini and the statue and his shoe is happening in a context, as you describe at this part of the book, where there are transformations in the sort of the ways that foreigners and missionaries are relating to Chinese Christians in this town. Part of this is happening because as a result of the negotiations over the boxer indemnity, the, a lot of the money that's making it to the community from the indemnity is actually not making it to the community, right? Most of it's invested, which makes in this part of the story the missionaries very, very powerful and also at the same time relatively immune from the state. Because of this, starting in the early 20th century, they're actually more European than Chinese clergy because of this new wealth. And this is all contributing to another point of pivoting or transformation in this larger story that Fatsini and his curse 
and his statue and his winemaking, which is another interesting part of this story, um, is all sort of leading us to and letting us see in a way that perhaps we wouldn't see otherwise. And just um, incidentally, because, um, as you mentioned in this part of the book, one of the things that results in the conflict between Fazzini and the villagers is this um, water, but water also related to winemaking. It's really interesting how you can trace winemaking through this entire book as also kind of a parallel story that's running um, alongside the, the main story. Did, you, did that strike you at all when you were writing this? Like, yes, it, wine it, was part of this? Yes, exactly. I mean, and indeed, it, it, it's a crucial activity. I mean, to some extent, um, Catholicism is a kind of economic niche for this village. It's how it has made its living over many centuries in, in, in many ways. Um, and, and one of the elements of that for a long time was, was the fact that the village was, that large amounts of grapes were purchased. The monks made the wine, but the grapes were grown locally. I mean, Qingshu County is a, is a major place for growing grapes, but it provides a particular kind of market, and then they sell this wine off. And indeed, you could have talked, there was more about the wine that didn't make it in. <laughs> So this is um, so. There's a lot more, obviously, going on in that chapter that I will, you know, I'll just tantalizingly put that out there for listeners because the um, hopefully, I, you know, listeners will go read the book and see all these wonderful details. But let's move on from here so that we make it to the four fragrances and this flying bicycle that you talked about early in the story. So what's happening here? Um, can you start us off by narrating um, as our master storyteller the four fragrances and the flying bicycle? What's going on in this? part of the story. Well, can I, can I set this up first? Before I tell you the story of the four fragrances, can I set, set course, this up by saying that in some way these two chapters, these chapters link because in many ways what we have here is the backstory of the official church. We have this, there's a very familiar narrative about China, which says that we have the official Catholic church and the underground Catholic church. And one of the things I wanted to do in this was to tell the backstory of the official church. Mm -hmm. um, and the official church, which is that campaign of the Chinese clergy against missionary domination. And the fact that in Shanxi, at least, um, the the, all, the pre, all the Chinese priests did enter the official Reformed Church in the early 1950s. Um, however, despite having done that, they also suffered very terribly, and most of them were in were in prison. And all of them, all of them were um, imprisoned, and they were shut away in various kinds of study class, or some some in regular prison, some in labor camps, some in study classes. Um, by 1965, and that's that really the background for this story of the four fragrances. So by this stage, the, the foreign missionaries are expelled, the Chinese priests are all off the scene, um, and the government starts a major, the, the Communist Party start, the government starts a major crackdown in the socialist education movement on Catholicism. And what they want um, Catholics to do is to make a clear statement that Catholicism is a bad religion. This is very interesting because I'd assumed that, that, that communist doctrine was atheist, so they should have been saying that communism, that, that, that God doesn't exist, but that wasn't what they demanded. What they demanded of people was that they should admit that Catholicism specifically is a bad religion, and that was because of its imperialist connections. So 
there's this pressure coming down on people. Um, and then there are a couple of um, farmers out in a field somewhere north of Taiyuan City, so some distance, maybe 20, 30 kilometers from, from, from Cape Gully, and, uh, but it's in another gully. And they're, they're looking up at a big lowest cliff, and they see a shape in, in the lowest, and it's the shape of a cross. Um, it's a huge thing. It's about three, it's still there three meters in across and probably longer down. And Lois is a very, very soft rock and um, it's easy enough to see this as a natural formation. However, they can see it as a natural formation, but also as a natural formation that brings a message to them. And the message is about the, 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 the importance of religion and they shouldn't leave the religion despite this pressure from the government. And people start to come from their village and then from other, many other villages to um, pray at this um, cross, and they pray. And they come. They come after dark because they're required to work all day. Because they're certainly not going to be given off time off working on collective farms to come and look at a Catholic miracle. So they come after dark. They kneel. They chant these prayers in this style. They have very strongly repetitive Buddhist chanted style, chanting out loud. And people begin to see visions, and they see the cross flashing, and they see a shining cross in the sky, and they see visions of the Virgin Mary. They see visions of people being dragged down into hell. They become convinced that the end of the world is coming. Um, and this one young woman from a neighboring village um, decides who starts to preach. She doesn't preach at this place, which is quite rapidly shut down, but thousands of people are coming every night before it gets shut down. She preaches in her home, home village, but many people go on from watching, looking at the cliff, and then the next day, the next morning, they will go to her village, jamming themselves into her, her, her the courtyard of her house, um, and she preaches, telling people to turn back. Um, to turn back to the church, not to renounce the church, um, to reject the morals of communism and to emphasise the, the, the old-fashioned yeah, old Catholic morality, um, particularly over property. So in, particularly she tells people to return anything they've taken that they feel they have unjustly. And of course, land reform and the many communist campaigns means that many people have, have things in their hands which they don't truly in their hearts think they should have. So they, there's a campaign... Well, she's conducting a campaign to get them to return, just as the socialist education movement is conducting a reverse campaign to get people to um, hand back stuff they've taken in what communists think is an immoral way. And so the conflict of those two moralities is very intense at this point. And this woman begins to preach. But then... Um, in a dramatic series of events which happened quite close to Cape Gully, she's arrested and on her arrest, it's now said that um, she pedaled so fast that, that, that she was put on the back of someone's bicycle as they were fleeing from the, from the police and they pedaled so, so fast that, they, um, that the bicycle took off and you could see it flying. And in fact, this, this, is, this is a very familiar story, but it avoids talking about what happens afterwards, and what happens afterwards is that she, um, in fact, the people who were arrested under those circumstances all, almost all seem to have been um, tortured and very, very badly treated, and she actually broke, um, and by the end, of, some people didn't break, um, and she, who seemed so brave and so heroic, then um, gave in and, and, and really said anything that the government wanted her to say much, which was incredibly damaging to the Catholic Church. So this is a very problematic story. So people tell the story not of her, but of 
four women who had the word fragrance in their names as she does, and thus by incorporating another three village women who also preached because there were other people seeing visions and preaching at this time. They managed to decenter her and to talk about the power of ordinary people and the power of the miraculous really to intervene in people's daily lives. Great. Now, you talk in this part of the chapter um, as, as well at, at some length about the ways that Cave Gully and its residents and um, its resident Catholics experienced the Cultural Revolution. And after this series of events, you describe how the crackdown on um, Catholicism in this period, in this area, ended public Catholic practice in Cave Gully for the next 13 years. But at the same time, it actually served to reinforce the sense of identity um, as a group that the Catholics of Cave Gully had, which actually helps them in this last part of the story that comes next, rebuild and get even stronger in the 1980s and 1990s. So can you tell us about that? What's happening in the 1980s and 1990s as there's this rebuilding process after this um, 13-year, not hiatus, right? We wouldn't call it a hiatus, but um, ending public Catholic practice uh, for about 13 years after this. So 1980s and 1990s, where are we in the 1980s and 1990s? It's long enough. One of the things that these events in the, in the mid-60s has done is to make ordinary people, um, uh, Li Zhengxiang had broken, the woman who preached had broken, but met other people, usually one or two other people in each village didn't break, and they went to prison, and they stayed there, and they were utterly loyal to their Catholic faith. And most people were willing to say, to sign a document, or to say that Catholicism was a bad religion, but there were one or two people everywhere who wouldn't. Um, and those people had to defend themselves for years. And they became very articulate in defending. They were ordinary people. Mostly, often they were poor peasants, because those were the people who in some ways could be bravest under the communist system. It was less dangerous for them than for the people who were landlords or whatever. Um, and those people became very articulate. And in the, once religion was um, was allowed again, the Catholics rebuilt their churches incredibly fast. It's really noticeable that um, uh, Buddhist temples in Shanxi only really began, began begin to be rebuilt in the 1990s, or at least in this part of Shanxi, whereas the Catholic churches are rebuilt really in the early 80s, often so badly that they have to be knocked down and rebuilt again 10 years later. But the community is just absolutely determined to restart public religious practice as soon as possible. And and many of those people were very articulate, and the book talks about an old chap called Mr. Duan, who and Mr. Duan went, go, who's illiterate, um, goes out, um, so he's actually now he's got very old, but... Um, but he has been going out for many years. He's been going out to the mountain areas and has converted 4,000 people to Christianity, um, uh, talking in a very simple way about, about in a very traditional way, about um, God as your father, the Virgin Mary as your mother, um, and, but also linking Catholicism to global science and to global modernity. And is this Duan um, related to the Duans that were that we met in the first chapter? Yes, that's one of the things that's so wonderful. Exactly, he is the same Duan family. Great, and so, so he's descended from the earliest people who were converts in in the 18th century, and he's preaching in very much the same way that those people are preaching. And one one of the most wonderful things I then discovered was that in fact there's a younger generation descendant who I then met who is some young chap in his late 20s, early 30s who has some now gone out and is a Catholic missionary in Brazil. 
Wow. So this is actually a really beautiful way that the story comes back and cycles back to where we were at the beginning. So for listeners, um, just to remind them, this is those two families that both were taking credit for founding Cave Gully in the first place at the beginning of our conversation. One of them was the Duan family. And so this brings us, so Duan Runcheng, this guy who we're talking about now, this priest, actually brings us back to the very beginning. He's not a priest. He's sadly, he would never be a priest. He can't even read. Ah, evangelist. Evangelist. He's just an old chap who goes around and converts people. He doesn't get any money from the diocese. He's always very unhappy about this. Wow, that's even more interesting. That's fabulous. <laughs> So this last part of the book, um, we don't have time to talk too much about the other stuff that's happening in Chapter 7, but I just want to signal for listeners, you describe here what happens as these, um, This is, I guess this is why I had priests on the brain, many of the priests who had suffered in the earlier part of the previous chapter as a result of this crackdown, as a result of the Cultural Revolution and its aftermath, they actually return to their families and they become symbols of what's happened in the 1960s and 1970s and become part of this new wave and this efflorescence of Catholic practice in the 1980s and 1990s. You talk about here the development of an institutionally separate underground church in the 1980s and then a sort of wave of rebuildings and conversions that are happening in the church in the 1990s. So it's a really interesting end um, of this story. Now, there's also, Henrietta, a conclusion that comes back to some of the major themes of the book um, that we, we talked about some of them in the introduction, um, but this also raises some others. Because of time, I'm not going to ask you about specific ones, but rather I'll, I'll put it this way. Is there anything that's happening in the conclusion of the book that you feel is particularly important for listeners to know um, as a, a part of understanding um, how to contextualize the conversation that we've just had? Well, I wanted to I wanted to use the conclusion to say, is this true for Protestantism? It, it, I, I looked at such a small place that I wanted to start thinking about how it might be true for other places. Um, you know, is Cape Gully representative not by looking at, at, at its representativeness, but by looking at other places and might you get some of the same stories? Um, and I came to the conclusion that some of these stories really are relevant, that, that the early history of Catholicism in a number of parts of China, that continuity seems to be a very important theme. And also the reliance of missionaries on institutions and the battles between um, over Chinese control of, of the missionary church seems to me also something that are really interesting to look at in Protestantism. Great. Well, thank you so much um, for talking with me for this hour. It's been really wonderful to talk with you about it. And the book itself is full of so many stories and characters and points and really interesting um, parts of the narrative that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book? I'm not sure. I, I think the stories of the underground church and the origins of the underground versus the official church, we've talked slightly less about, about about the very end of the book. But I think there's a there has been a very simplistic attitude about the underground versus the official church and the way in which these two institutions are really melded together in central Shanxi while, while yet expressing tensions about the past is also very important. Great. 
So now that the book is out, and congratulations on what's not only a really interesting, but also a really pleasurable and really readable book about Chinese history, about storytelling, about many, many other kinds of things. But now that the book is out, what project or projects are currently inspiring you? What can we um, hope to read next from you? Well, I, I had a story about, um, so there was one chapter that didn't make it into the book because I couldn't work out how this priest had ever been to Cape Gully. So I found a priest and he was the interpreter for the first British embassy to China. Um, and he then came on to a career in Shanxi, but he was mostly based in the south of the province. And I don't think he ever visited Cape Gully, but his story was completely fascinating. Um, he interpreted for the first British embassy. Um, he went on to a long career. He was recommended to be a bishop uh, more than 100 years before any, any Chinese was actually allowed to be a bishop. Um, and so I'm working on a new project, which follows, which is a biography of him and of the little boy, the little English boy, who was the other person who interpreted the first British embassy to China. Fabulous. So I will look forward to talking with you about that book, too, when it comes out. In another 20 years. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. I'll, we'll, we'll hopefully still be here. Um, so thank you so much, Henrietta. It's really been a pleasure. It was a, it's a fabulous book, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me about it today. Thank you very much. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.